Good evening. Good to see you tonight. It always is. If you have your Bibles, be turning to Psalm 51 is where we'll study tonight, begin our study. We have been talking over the last couple of weeks about David and about his rise and his fall. And that's where we left off last week. David's rise was surprising. His fall was surprising. On the other hand, David's rise and fall were not surprising. And we noted last week that it's not surprising what God did. And God saw it. He didn't stop it. He was displeased. He sent the prophet. He had mercy upon David. And he allowed David to suffer the consequences of his actions. And most people believe that what we have been studying sets the background for Psalm 51. Our study is not David's rise and fall. It's David's rise and fall and restoration. And the plea is for anyone who might be in this dynamic. Uh, maybe an elder, a preacher, deacon, once a faithful Christian, an individual who may have risen like David, did great things for the Lord. People knew your name and your faith was spread abroad and you were such an avid, avid worker and servant for the Lord. And they sinned. And not like we rate sins per se, but they've fallen. And the fall was so great because they had done so much for the Lord, just like David. A good person, pure heart, but now they feel ruined and useless. Maybe they didn't just commit sin, but they lived a life of sin. David did all of this. Depending on the sin, you could enumerate David's. There was lust and lying. There's adultery and drunkenness, betrayal and murder. David did all of that. It's important not to just emulate David's rise and fall, but it's imperative to emulate his restoration. And after all of that, David was restored to the Lord. And Psalm 51 lays out that plea, an ultimate restoration. We probably won't finish the psalm tonight, so this will be part one of Psalm 51. We'll try to get about halfway through the psalm. And as we go through the psalm and we listen to David, it's important to keep in mind, at least in my estimation, the psalm is as much about God as it is David. The psalm is about David's understanding of his God. It's about David's understanding of sin and sorrow and sinning against God and the pain that he has caused, particularly because of how good God had been to him. In fact, that's one of the things that God said that I've taken you from the sheepfold. I've given you your, your master's house. I've made you king over Israel. I've given you his wives. And if that had not been enough, God said, I'd have given you more. The psalm is full of powerful pleas from a penitent child of God. David truly is an experiencing godly sorrow. And what we're hearing is the private petitions of a sorrowful child of God. That's really the way the psalm begins. It begins as a plea for mercy. There's no pretense. Guilty is the verdict, and it's understood by both parties. We could say of David, he's having his day in court. The guilty go up to the courthouse of heaven. He ascends the stairs and enters the eternal hall of justice. He makes his way to the bench before the judge of all the earth. He falls down prostrate. He throws himself on the mercy of the court. And he begins his pleas. 
Verse number one, verse number two, a plea for mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. You hear immediate, there's no introduction, no praise, just the immediate plea for mercy. A son who has hurt his father, a servant who has harmed his master. His plea is for grace and mercy. The one pleading knows the judge. He doesn't want the judge to use the law to make this decision. He's guilty. He does not plead based on his past faithfulness. He says nothing of his past. Instead, what he says before the judge is, use your character to judge me. The source and the manner of the judge, have mercy on me, but how? According to your loving kindness, according to your greatness. The plea seemed to intensify as he makes them before the judge, be gracious to me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You know, I don't know how much thought you give to what it would feel like to be in this position, to be the person that was once well-known and well-named, and to sin so egregiously that there you stand guilty. To all of God's children who have fallen, it's imperative not to think about what other people would think if you should come back. Not to think about how they would view you. You hear nothing in these verses about anybody else. For David is only concerned that God will have him back. And if you ever find yourself in the position of needing to come back to God, I beg you, emulate David and focus on God. Have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness. Be gracious to me according to your goodness. No other person is mentioned. God, use your goodness to cleanse me and purge me and wash me. The second thing that David does is he acknowledges his guilt. That's verse number three. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The thing about godly sorrow is to be honest and to acknowledge you are the one. And so David does that. I acknowledge my transgression. It's like raising your hand at the board and a teacher has their back turned and somebody does something. The teacher turns around and says, who did that? And you watch. There's a class full of people and no one did it. How did it happen? I don't know. Who did it? I don't know. You come home and something's broken and only your children are in the house. How did that happen? I don't know. No, David doesn't do any of that. David raises his hand, as it were, and says, it was me. I did it. I acknowledge my transgression. But David's also sorrowful, and it's part of the consequence of sin. You notice that he says, my sin is ever. He doesn't say my sin is ever before you. He says, my sin is ever before me. 
Who's had to live with this for all of that time, all of those months, all the way down to the child being born and then thereafter? Who had to live with it day after day? David did. Wherever he went, he knew what he did. There would have been a time when nobody else would have known about Uriah, but David. There would have been a time when nobody else was aware, but David. And so David says, I don't simply acknowledge my transgression. I want you to understand, I get it. I carried it around with me day after day after day after day. What is it that keeps people from coming back to God? Probably these two things. I, they won't acknowledge it. It doesn't matter about people. It matters about God. And David says, I get it. I acknowledge my transgression, and I've been living with it every single day. And yet that's exactly what it takes. Because if we are willing to admit our sin and come to God, then God will cleanse us. David is not an individual who is faithful to God and committed an act of sin. We'd be having a different conversation. In fact, if that were the case, we'd be reading 1 John 1 and verse number 7, and I'd be talking to you about how the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing. But that's not what David was. David was a person who began a life of sin. He went down this path. The person who is faithful never leaves the light. David understands he has been living a lie for some time. I acknowledge it. It's ever before me. Before you can be restored, you must acknowledge and admit your sin. And David is willing to do that. It brings us to verse number four, and that is David identifies the victim. Verse number four, David says, against you. King James says, against thee and you only. I have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak. Who's the victim in all of this? It was not David. David was not the victim because he got caught. It's sometimes the way people respond to sin. There are generally two responses when we are confronted with our wrong, generally two responses. One response is, I get angry that you caught me. I get angry that you've confronted me. And I am angry that you did it. And generally, with that response, I turn it on you. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Nobody's perfect. You got the nerve to come talk. That's generally one. The person projects, puts it on the other person. How dare you talk to me like that? The other way is godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. And that's what David is. David says, I'm not the victim because I got caught. In fact, Nathan said, remember, thou art the man. What was David's response to that? I have sinned. From the time Nathan says that to just a few verses later, it's David who says, I have sinned. I'm not the victim. Who is? You're the victim. The very judge he stands before is the one who has been sinned against. David says two things in this verse. He says, number one, I acknowledge that it's you. I did the wrong. You're the victim. You were the one wrong. Against you and you only have I sinned. Done what is evil in your sight. And then he says, so that you are justified when you speak. What is it that God said? The sword shall never leave your house. Was that just? David says, yes, it was. Why was it just? I broke the law. I violated him. I did wrong. So when he speaks, he's just. Sometimes people do that to God. 
that somehow if they wrong him, if they violate his word and their consequences, they think God did wrong. David is just the opposite. He says, no, I'm the one who did wrong, and therefore whatever you say is just, and it is. What was just? There were four sons of David that died. We noted that last week, four lambs, four children. Even the baby died. You know what David did after the baby died? He got up, washed himself, and went on living his life. David's not the victim. God is. And God is just. And if you're going to be restored, you must come to that realization too. Getting caught is not the problem. It may be the best thing in the world for us. Being exposed is not the problem. It may be the very best thing for us. After all, David didn't say he sinned until Nathan came. How long would he have continued down this path? I don't know. Thank God he sent Nathan. And when David heard it, I have sinned. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world works death. If we continue to believe that we are the victim, we won't admit the sin. We can't admit the sin, then we won't be reconciled to God. All sin is against God all the time, and therefore getting caught may be the very best thing that happens. David wrote in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. In verse 71 of that same psalm, he says, It was good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The way home may lead through a pig's pen, but it would be better to come home dirty than to stay in the pen pig and and, and stay in the mire. Don't stay in the far country. Come home and let God cleanse you. Admit the wrong. Acknowledge it. Own it. Let God be just and come home to God. The next thing that David does is he pleads, at least in my estimation, for understanding. Maybe amount, a certain amount of sympathy and empathy. One of the great things about being in God's courtroom as a child of God is there is no opposing counsel. If there were an opposing counsel, they might object to verse number five. In fact, they might, as some good lawyers do, ask for relevancy. What does this have to do with anything? And on the surface, they would appear to be right. After all, verse number five, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now question, what does that have to do with 2 Samuel 11? What does that have to do with anything about walking out on the roof, seeing a woman bathing, sending for her, taking her line with her, and getting her prayer? What does that have to do with it? They might say, what's the relevancy of that? Someone might say, well, David seems to be trying to dodge it, trying to get around it, blame it on his mother, or something like that. I don't believe it's an excuse for sin, primarily because David's already owned it. In verse number three, David says, I know my transgression. Verse number two, he says, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. It's not a man ducking sin. He's already owned it. I don't believe David is shifting blame. It's not his mother's fault. Certainly not. Her sin or her sins. He's not born a sinner, but whatever she did brought him in by sin. Well, David is simply acknowledging that. I think, and this is just me thinking, but I think it's an appeal. I think it's an appeal from a son to a father, from a servant to a master, pleading from a standpoint of frailty. I am feeble, and I am frail, and I have failed. I think that's what it is. 
And I, I, I think it's fair to say the judge would take such into account. Now, how would you know that? In Psalm 103 in verse number 14, speaking of God and us, David says, for he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are but dust. It's not an excuse for sin. I think he's pleading for mercy, pleading on the basis of, I messed up. He knows that we are but dust. Some people seemingly can't back, come back to God because they can't believe they fail. They can't believe it happened to them. They can't come back because they can't convince themselves that other people won't look down on them. We talked about not thinking too highly of ourselves last week. That would be to think too highly. That somehow, because of my place, my station, my position, my knowledge, my service, whatever it is, I can't fall. Well, yeah. You get to doing the wrong things and get on a path that leads you down, but you can. You put yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong thing on your mind. Well, you're not immune. It could happen. It happened to David. It could happen to us. Maybe other times we turn the grace of God into a system of law, and once I've fallen, now I'm guilty. I cannot get back up from this. It's important to appreciate that the grace of God is greater than your fall. The problem is not falling down, although it's a problem. The problem is staying down. David refuses to stay in and wallow in, and so he's pleading and begging, I think, for mercy. It has nothing to do with his mother's fault, and I don't think he's alleging that. But David is pleading, I messed up. It's on me. I am feeble. I'm frail. I listen. I, you understand, and the judge of all the earth knows what he made. David then understands what God would require for restoration. He says as much in verse number 6. Speaking of the judge of all the earth, David says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Behold, you desire truth in the inner part, the heart. The seed grows in a good and honest heart. And what's the truth here? You desire it. You desire the truth. Well, what's the truth? I've sinned. I did wrong. I acknowledge it. I admit it. That's exactly what God wants. He desires the heart. Nearly every part of our relationship with God eventually goes back to our heart. God wants us to want to. He wants us to love Him and to want to serve Him. We love God, how? With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We believe God with our heart. We trust God with our heart. In fact, it was David's heart that attracted God to him. A man after God's own heart. Look not after his size or his stature, for I rejected him. The Lord seeth not as man seeth. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. What keeps once faithful people away from God is the one thing they need to come home to God. Concerning the offering that he was collecting on behalf of some of the saints in Jerusalem, Paul wrote these words, If there first be a willing mind, it is accepted. 
not according to what a man does not have, but according to what a man has. What is it that you possess that no one else can possess, that no one else can take away or give you? What is it that you own? You own your heart. It's yours, and you have it, and God wants you to give it to him. And if there's a willing mind, it's accepted. Don't stay estranged from God because of what people will think. And I wish I could say they won't think anything. I wish I could say nobody will ever look at you sideways. I wish somebody—can you imagine a person of faith doing what David did? Could they be restored? Could they come back? Would we be okay with it? You know, David here is not talking about Israel. He's talking about God. I want to be acceptable to you. David says, you desire truth in the innermost being. Come back and give God your heart. That's exactly what it wants. David then pleads for cleansing. You can hear it again. You see it there in verse 1, 2, and 3. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. I know my trans... He, he returns to that thought in verse number 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. There is a place that David wants to get back to a place once where he enjoyed sweet communion with God with a pure heart and a sincere walk. And now he, through his own actions of selfishness and lust and all of those other things, he has corrupted it. And you hear him pleading, if you wash me, if you clean me, will you purify me? Wash me. What do you want? I want to be back. I want that relationship back. In fact, he says joy would be involved, too, in verse number 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Oh, I don't know about David's life. I, obviously, I wasn't there. But can you imagine there being a lot of joy in his life after Uriah's death? Even after the victory was won and they came home, can you imagine all of the soldiers as they ran to David, maybe to hug him and celebrate the victory, minus a few? Can you imagine the sorrow and the sadness when he was alone in his own mind and the resources there? David knew what it was like to be a soldier. David knew what it was like to go to war and one of his own. Well, he had him killed. And he took his wife. Day after day, I acknowledge it. It's ever before me. Every time he looked at Bathsheba, who he took to be his wife, wasn't he reminded of her former husband and what he'd done? Every ounce of joy that he could have had, the child is going to be born. There's a pregnancy here. It would have also been tainted with, but Uriah was killed and I did it. There is no joy when sin dominates our lives. The very nature of sin and the very nature of God won't allow it. The holy and the profane, the light and the darkness, it can't dwell in the same heart. Good and evil can't spring forth from the same tree. Blessing and cursing can't flow from the same well. The law of sowing and reaping won't allow it. It'll prevent it. 
When sin is the seed sown, joy can't be the fruit born. Mm -mm, that can't happen. When sin is planted, sadness and sorrow and regret have to be reaped. You can't sow to the flesh and reap to the Spirit. No, sir, no, ma'am. The law of sowing and reaping won't allow it. Nobody will ever be able to convince me that their life is better in the fall than it was before it. That somehow you're better off without God than you were with Him. That your estrangement from God and His church has somehow improved your life. No, sir, and no, ma'am. You won't be able to convince me of that. No, sir. The law of sowing and reaping won't allow it. If you were once faithful, if you were ever once faithful, and I had people try to sell me on this. I used to be faithful. I used to go to the church. I used to, but I'm better. No, sir. No, if you were ever faithful, you know God sent Christ while you were a sinner. Christ cried and died for your sins, not his. You know that. Christ has only one church. He purchased it with his blood. And you obeyed the gospel and were saved from your sins, and now you've gone back to the sin from which you were cleansed. You've gone back to the world from which you were saved. You've gone back to the pen. You've gone back to the mire. You've gone back to the people you once ran with, and now you know the people of God love you and long for you to come home. You've left the king and his kingdom, the light, and you've gone back to the devil and darkness. You know tomorrow is not promised and life is a vapor, and you know the truth about heaven and hell. How can you rest and have joy? No, sir, no, ma'am. Your heart hurts when you think about it. Your mind remembers every Lord's Day comes, every Lord's Day comes. You know what the people of God are doing. You can't forget Christ's death for you. In fact, you probably occasionally hear from some of the church family reminding you the plea in your own mind is persistent and loud go back home to God and David came back because he wants that joy restored he knew that life without God was not better than sweet communion with God I'm convinced you know it too and so David came home and David is pleading make me to hear that joy once again it mirrors what we read in Luke chapter 15. That young man who leaves the father house and goes to the far country, David could relate. The young man that finds himself in the pig's pen contemplating eating with them. But he came to himself, and what did he do? He came home to his father. You think a few days after he'd been home, you could ask him, which was better? The far country or being back home with your father? Tell me, which one was better? Where were you most happy? Where's the joy in your life? I don't think you have any problem hearing it from him. No, David wants the joy back. There is finally in verse number 9, a plea for God to turn away from his sin. He says it again and again. He started there as early as verse number 1, verse number 2. Be gracious, have mercy, wash me, cleanse me. I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Again, in verse 7, purify me, cleanse me, wash me, make me to hear the joy. And then finally here in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. What's David seeking? Restoration, reconciliation. David knows that God sees. David knows that God has seen we close the chapter of 2 Samuel 11 with the words, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. David, no, God sees it. What David is asking here is, would you stop? Would you stop? 
Would you now hide your face? Would you forgive? Would you, would you let it be gone? Would you blot it out? Would you erase it and not count it anymore? Blot it out. Remove it. Cleanse me. Now, Lord's will next week, we'll start at verse number 10 and go all the way to the end of the chapter with regards to David's restoration. But in these first nine verses, you hear the pleadings of a godly sorrow, a broken son pleading to his father to have mercy and to forgive. Let me ask you this. What do you know about your father in heaven? What do you know about our father in heaven? David would have been restored. That this is precisely what the God of heaven would have wanted for David, and he would have received him. David's restoration begins with pleas for mercy and grace. He acknowledges his sin. He is sorrowful for that sin. That sorrow for sinning against God, he acknowledges it. The giving of his heart to God, the returning to a state of joy, and he ends in verse number 9 asking God to blot it out and remove it. Don't count it anymore. Next week, we'll pick up with verse number 10, and we'll hear David's continual request and pleas to God, coupled with some promises on the behalf of David about the new phase of the relationship. It might be the case tonight that you're not a Christian, but we often end the invitation, and generally we don't make it by way of distinction. We just kind of run it all together. And so let me try to make a little bit more of a distinction with regards to our invitations. The invitations are always twofold. We're pleading on the one hand for someone who's never obeyed the gospel. Here's the good news of Jesus. He died for you. He loves you. He gave his life's blood for you so that you could be saved and freed from sin and its guilt and its bondage. And so we invite with the gospel, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and repent and confess his name and be immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of sins, walk in newness of life. That's how you could get out of that state and all of those things that David is asking you could have as a result of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's always part of the invitation. There's always a second part, though, and it's to Christians, people like David, people who have been faithful to God maybe and have begun the journey away and people who have gotten caught up in sin and whether they knew it or not, intended it or not, it's taken them further and further and further away and they find themselves in need of coming home and being restored. That too is part of the invitation. And every week we say, if that's you, repent and come home. Let the arms of God are ever open and the picture in Luke 15 is not just a son coming home, David. It's a father anxiously awaiting his arrival and restoring him to his former state. It doesn't matter what other people think. It only matters that God will have you back. And if you can trust him and rely on him, if you can be sorrowful for your sin, if you can be washed and cleansed and purged, you can be restored. And if that's your need, then that part of the invitation is just as important as the other. And so if you have any need, if we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.